Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive function. This podcast is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem solving, emotional balance, and independence. So join us as we explore executive function and the science of learning. And now, here's your host, the founder of EXQ, Sucheta Kamath. Welcome to another episode of Full Prefrontal. My mission is to help people understand that their brain's prefrontal cortex, at its best, acts as an orchestra conductor, directing actions, guiding emotions, tweaking responses, and calibrating decision-making in order to create beautiful, harmonious symphony of a well-lived life. And I bring you the guest who contributes to this process of uncovering the key components that drive and propel this neocortex into self-regulation. Each guest brings their unique perspective and their expertise to help promote the growth and development of this unique cerebral system that is designed to collaborate, communicate, and connect. And today I have a fabulous guest and I am so thrilled that I get to celebrate her accomplishments with you because today is a very special day of her launch of her second edition of the book she has written. So let me introduce you to a dear friend and a colleague, a fellow SL peeps, Elizabeth Sauter. She is a speech language pathologist and award-winning author, blogger, highly sought after speaker. She specializes in social emotional learning and she's been uh, around in the field inspiring all of us since 1996. She has special interest in um, this topic because she brings her personal story. I'm sure she'll share that with us. But she created a Make Social Learning Stick a while ago and I'm so glad she has taken the time to kind of revisit that and and um, make it even maybe 2020 ready or maybe beyond 2020. And probably I'm sure she has a lot, lot to offer in terms of COVID context. And finally, she's also a co-author of a popular children's book series, my favorite called Whole Body Listening Larry. So welcome, Elizabeth, to the podcast. How are you? Oh, it's so great to be here, Suchita. I'm great. I'm really excited today. And that introduction was just like music to my ears in so many ways. I can't even tell you, but we talk all about helping others communicate and connect. And I love the orchestra. And yeah, let's let's play this. Let's play this music. Yes. Well, I'm so glad we play simil- in the same band. So I'm oh. so happy. All right. So I asked this question of all my guests. Uh, since we talk about self-regulation, executive function, communication, do you mind telling us a little bit about your own abilities and skill set? And when did you become self-aware that you have these gifts or you have these challenges? Wow. Interesting. Okay. So me personally as, yes. uh, okay. Wow. That's a big question. Okay. So I grew up in Oakland, Oakland, um, in California, and my sister is actually developmentally delayed. Yes. So she's two years older than I am. And my parents actually were clear about what, um, were her challenges until I started developing faster than her. Um, and so that's when she, you know, got testing and whatnot. And she was actually in the portables, you know, when it wasn't mainstreamed or anything back then, um, and with an eye patch and all these great things. Right. So there was a lot of challenges going on and it was really interesting for me growing up with OT equipment in my, um, basement, which is actually a lot of fun. And then, you know, sitting in a lot of waiting rooms and whatnot. 
But along the way, this is actually something I don't talk about very often. Um, you know, some of my needs in terms of learning were not discovered. And so um, I was always kind of in this lower reading group and struggled a little bit, but then I was gifted when I went to middle school, you know, tested for the gifted classroom. So it was really confusing for me. So um, in general, I think that like, you know, my brain on the spectrum is, you know, one of those resilient really driven, but struggles with some of the details and some of the, um, I think, I mean, basically as a speech and language pathologist, I have diagnosed myself, it's never been diagnosed on paper as having dyslexia. Um, And now I'm learning a lot about this more um, for my own children who I have two boys um, and my older struggles quite a bit with executive functioning. Um, He was diagnosed in fourth grade with Um, ADHD, learning disabilities and anxiety. And I saw some of the same things that I recognized in myself as a child in him, not so much the behavioral things, but, you know, he was the one, a child that got his name on the board and benched for recess. I mean, come on, really benching kids for recess. So they all, they all heard it from me. (laughs) There's a great article that I have on my Pinterest page about that exact thing about keeping kids away from recess who need to get their energy out. So anyway, that's also been part of my journey is, um, myself and how my brain works and learning about that. Um, and I have editors for everything, but if you catch anything, you tell me, cause I will never be offended because it's not my, how my brain works. But, um, and, but my son as well, who has ADHD learning disabilities and anxiety and just trying to get him the services that he needs because he also was super bright, is super bright. And everybody said, Oh, he's fine. He just needs to be more motivated. Yeah. 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 You know, the story. And you can read about my journey. I've written a blog on that as well over on my website. But, um, you know, that's been, uh, you know, a lot of advocating and ups and downs. And we call it, um, actually, Julian and I just did a, a podcast, actually a summit together for ADHD. And it was all about riding the waves. It takes ripples to make waves. And we talked all about riding the waves. So a that's lot of personal great. I think it's so interesting. So I've been talking to experts all, all around the world and, this insight, personal insight, when you uh, comes to you uh, much later, once you're a, l- a little bit older and mature and have that capacity to look back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I've always found that the clinicians that are on my podcast have so much f- more deeper <laughs> insight. And I no, no offense to anybody else, but they, they are much more attuned, uh, which is probably gets them help ready. So they are, they're a lot more helpful because they have kind of had a lot more introspection. I don't think I have no, any learning disability when I was growing up. I do think, however, um, so I speak five languages and write uh, three. And um, I think my education suddenly went through a mega transformation where I was learning all subjects in Marathi, my mother tongue, until 10th grade. And 11th grade, everything shifted to English. Mm. which is science and math. So I'm doing math in my head, in my mother tongue. And then you have to write this formula and, and uh, you know, theorems. Don't know the language, don't know the words. And yeah. I kind of got really screwed up, I think, in terms of I'm slower. I, I'm not, I was not very confident if I'm writing proficiently, but I was a great writer. I was, a, I could have been a, like a literature major when in my wow. mother tongue. So I do understand the experiences because of having this little 
whoa, like I, I don't know what to make of it kind of experience. Well, um, yeah, your your brain is like over language processing, over executive functioning with all the different, you know, like signals going which way, where do they fire? I have a question for you though. Yes. What, what language do you dream in? So it's so funny. I think it's, uh, it's now uh, I am a proficient English speaker for, uh, so if you take a trajectory of 40 years, I would mm-hmm. say last 20 years, it's been in English. Okay. Um, and I don't dream as vividly. So that's another problem. Right, uh, right, right. We'll talk about that. But <laughs> okay, uh, coming back, so uh, I wanted to kind of set the stage for this, uh, the new edition of your uh, book, which is such a meaningful and important uh, uh, idea that you have uh, put forward for everybody to benefit from is more not just make social learning stick, but make social emotional learning. So I wanted to kind of start off by the, some foundational skills that you and I in the field of speech language pathology talk about pragmatics, this ability to apply knowledge of language in the social context mm-hmm. and recognize that language is only effective or ineffective if it is contextually inappropriate. So you may be using so a switch from formal to informal language, you know, code switching, speech mm-hmm. uh, Speaking with your peers versus your parents, talking with your teachers versus talking to somebody on the street. So talk to us, uh, begin, begin with communication. What does communication mean to you? And why is communication so important? And this may sound very obvious to people, but I think we have a specific lens that we can really uh, organize our thoughts about it. So what are your thoughts about that? Yeah. I mean, I have so many thoughts and you said so much there and, um, you know, behavior is communication. We say that quite often. And I've worked over the years with many behavior consultants at a, right out of grad school, I worked at a school for severely impaired children with autism and behaviors. And we worked alongside um, behavior consultants um, so closely. And it was such a great synergy of our expertise in looking at behavior as communication because, and, you know, behavior as communication can be positive, whereas you're, you know, using verbal language and smiling and using your hand gestures and hugging all the different wonderful things. And it can also be challenging. So if a child doesn't have, or a person doesn't have the words, the language, whatever it might be, then what happens is, is we have maladaptive behavior. um, And that could look like, you know, swearing it could look like it could look like punching it could look like you know tantrum on the floor whatever it might be and we see this quite often with toddlers because they don't have the language to express themselves yet um and amongst other things that they're managing with emotional regulation um so the thought is then to increase communication to decrease maladaptive behavior because if these children the actually they weren't only children they were you know ages 5 through 22 at this school and these were the children who actually uh, used to be institutionalized. And now they have wonderful schools that can support them with these behavioral challenges. But we would do all kinds of things from increasing verbal and um, expressive language, receptive language, receptive meaning understanding, expressive obviously is you know using signs, gestures, picture communications, or verbal language to get their needs and wants met, um, to increase their communication so that they would then decrease these maladaptive behaviors. And then, then the goal was to get them you know, back into the public school system when they were able to increase their communication and have um, their behavior be somewhat manageable for a public school setting. So that, I mean, that right there is the extreme of it. But, you know, I mean, in this day and age, I think communication is everything. And what you said into about connection and collaboration, it's just like you have to have the skills to communicate um, 
to have the ability to interact with other people and in an effective way and collaborate and, and connect. And such a big part of communication is social. And that's what you mentioned too, is understanding, you know, the thoughts of others, that's the perspective taking, really being able to step in somebody's shoes and realize they have different experiences and beliefs and whatever than you. Um, the pragmatic language that you mentioned in terms of the context, actually my book is all context-based and for that very reason, because parents and, you know, we're in these situations with our kids, how do you teach in these natural situations? And all the situations are teachable. Um, you know, we have receptive and expressive language that's understanding and then being able to express and then um, the joint attention too, which is being able to have shared focus on an object or a situation, which is huge, especially those with autism, but um, executive function challenges too, because your attention is diverted all over the place um, in milliseconds. And so, you know, you could miss that nonverbal expression on somebody's face, or you could miss the nuance of an actual situation or, um, or some shared imagination and play with little kids. So um, there's a lot to unpack when it comes to communication, and it's a lot more vast and complex than people really realize. I love that. I think the the uh, you have such deep understanding of the topic, and that the nuances, the crevices of interpersonal relationship that hinges on these tiny, tiny like milestones of behaviors. Uh, and I really like the way you said that behavior is communication. And I'll add to it, which is lack of is also communication. So if somebody doesn't say something, that's also communication. Silence is communication. And I think okay. that kind of uh, the the burden, and when I work with the people, I always say uh, it's, it's when we collaborate, it has to be 50-50 lifting of the burden. So if other person has to do more work of figuring out what you're trying to say, what you're trying to be, then you're not doing uh, uh, you know your job, which is kind of share who you are, what you mean, what you want to accomplish. So talk a little bit about this, social skills, which you alluded to this. So um, the, the social communication, which is understanding people and understanding minds of others, uh, which then feeds into being able to make friends, keep friends, follow the etiquette or protocol of given circumstances. And most importantly, where executive function meets here is how to adapt. If you don't know something, and I always tell people, you know, this experiment that has turned out to be a really good experiment for me coming from another country to oh, another really? country is a great way to kind of put your own understanding of the culture and etiquette and, and rules and regulations and the implicit to test. I'll give you a quick example. <laughs> when I was in grad school, I came here first. And in India, this is kind of probably I shouldn't even give example on the air, but, um, you know. Oh. Uh, kind of plucking kids' cheeks when you meet them as a form mm -hmm. of greeting was very, very socially acceptable. And so in my clinic, I walk in with a, mm -hmm. a fellow <laughs> clinician as a grad school, and my professor had uh, offered us generously his two-year-old uh, to do language sample with. And so mm -hmm. we got into this booth and we were being video recorded. Two of us, the other fellow clinician was um, American, and here I am, FOB, fresh off the boat from India, go straight for this girl's cheeks and like, <laughs> hi. And oh my God. So this, she just kind of started screaming so loudly and did not want to be 
ever having anything to do with me. So I was kind of taken out of that situation. I didn't understand what I did wrong. I was so embarrassed as well as I was petrified to deal with kids from that then on. But yeah. so, so tell us a little bit about, so I obviously lost this little translation that don't touch children yes, <laughs> or don't, don't greet them, establish a rapport in a different way. Right. So, so tell us a little bit about what your understanding of this process is. It's so fascinating and it's so nuanced and, and, and kind of like, you know, a little bit dangerous, you know, like, I mean, so um, there's so much I could say here. Let me just um, start from the fact that, so in my book, as I mentioned, it is, there's, it's context-based. So it's divided into four sections. I added a new section for the second book. It's home, community, holidays, special events. And then now I added bridging home and school because I've done so much of that now with my son, with his own IEP. And it's just so important, right? Um, everybody said so you these are four a- contexts. So can you t- walk us through all the four contexts? Yes. So yeah. basically, um, so in so in the book, it's there's an introduction and there's a huge grid on you know that where your child might be struggling in different areas, including executive function and all the things with social communication and emotional regulation. So you can find out you know um, if you're looking to focus on executive functioning, then you would go to that column and you would find all the activities in the book that that support with executive function skills. But the rest of the book is over 200 activities and it's divided into home, community, holidays, special events, and bridging home and school. And so like in the home section, the first pages are start the day. And then it goes into rules for having fun and encouraging play with siblings and pretend play, anti-boredom, chores, you know, media, phone, pets, all the different things that you would do at home with your child. And then um, in the community, it's in the car, at the mall, at the movies, at the doctor's office, you know, eating out all these different things. And then, you know, in um, commu- uh, holidays and special events, Mother's Day, Halloween, um, Thanksgiving, all of that. And then the school piece is like the things that parents would need to focus on in terms of home and school. Um, and, and transitioning their child for success and partnering with the school staff. At the bottom of every single one of these pages, like since I, I'm at the, um, the school, Bridging Home and School one right now, the bottom of the hidden rules. Um, and it says each school teacher assigns homework in different ways. So these are just, you know, going over the things that you would need to maybe go over in terms of the hidden rules, what's expected, what are the social expectation, we call them social rules as well for each context. And there's about three or four for each one. So another one would be um, at home. Um, this is one for TV time and show time. So watching TV with other people, you won't always get to watch your favorite show. This is time for being together and using your flexible thinking. So just every, and then there's a whole bunch more that I could talk about. But so basically I've given examples of things that parents can prime, what we call in the field, priming your child for success in helping them to know what's expected and what those hidden social rules are, those pragmatic language. We talked about that code switching for each of these contexts. And, you know, of course, in different cultures, it's different. And every household is different, really. Like some people take off their shoes when you walk into their house, right? Some people pray before they eat their meals. Some people, you know, it's fine to eat in front of the TV. Like it's just different in every household and it's not meant to be hard and set rules. It's just to have parents realize um, that they need to be going over these things with their children to set them up for success. 
And I have so many stories that are similar to yours in terms of the, the squeezing the cheeks there's like with my clients. Um, I have one client actually that he is, he's, um, an adult, he has a job and he's been trying to connect with his coworkers and, um, he, um, we've been, he, he doesn't like to go out with them after work, but I've told him that that's how he can show that he really wants to, you know, get to know them and like put more in their person file, his person file about them to get them to talk, you know, outside of work. And so each month he goes one time. And so, um, we always go over it beforehand and talk about, you know, where are you going to go? Olive garden, this place, that place. And we research all the different hidden rules of that place. And like what it would be like, well, one time he decided to go without, reviewing it with me. So we went to this like dive bar and um, they were going to play pool. And, and I said, okay, how'd it go? And he's like, I could only stay for five minutes. I was so overwhelmed because he went in there and I usually in my presentations, I show the picture because I Googled it with him afterwards. And it was this total dive bar that had bras hanging from the ceiling (laughs) and underwear and lingerie and all of these like I I don't know what unexpected, unexpected, like, how could I, you know, and so he didn't get to go over the hidden rules of this particular dive bar. And he was so overwhelmed. He's just like, get me out of here. (laughs) And so there's just so many nuances, even when you do go over them, but it's really can, it can be helpful to review them ahead of time for sure. And afterwards to go over what we do an autopsy, right? So what you're saying is really kind of um, we we have uh, we we have to incorporate in our work is this value of context because context determines the relationship between the participants and what's allowable and what's not allowable and those uh, related rules or those protocols are invisible to somebody who struggles with social understanding, uh, correct? Yes, absolutely. And actually, Peter Vilmillion talks about it being um, context blindness. Um, so there can be people who have a hard time reading facial expressions. There can be a pe- people who have a hard time taking perspective and understanding the thoughts of others, theory of mind. Um, and then there's people that really struggle to figure out situational awareness and what is going on in actual situations. And that where those are the lagging skills that need to be worked on. Um, Michelle Garcia Winner calls it, when we talk about the hidden social rules as, as like having people understand what's expected and what's unexpected. And so, you know, we try to have, you know, be, you know, accepting and not judgmental with, you know, appropriate and inappropriate or, you know, etiquette and manners and those kind of things. But there are certain things, you know, like, zipping up your pants before you walk out of the bathroom or certain things you say and don't say or taking off your shoes or not or pinching people's cheeks that are you make people feel comfortable or uncomfortable right and you know the reverse is also very interesting so um and and i when i present i talk to people all the time that when i came to this country i've felt like an alien, or I felt almost like I have acquired autism, you know, (laughs) not developmental autism, but, but kind of not really knowing the rules or the, the, the things. And it's so interesting that most of the burden falls on a somebody, somebody who is coming from uh, a minority uh, or who is in in the larger context. So I have to adapt to the larger context. So if you came to India, then you will be adapting to larger context of India. And, and so people not knowing is something I also have to accommodate for. 
and me not knowing is also something I have to accommodate for. It's so much. It's so complex. It's so complicated. Right. And we, you know, I think that we could do all a better job at, you know, understanding different cultures and biases. I mean, this is a whole nother topic that I want to get into, right? But um, yes. I'll tell you a quick story. I agree. A quick story about my my son. So in my house, we don't wear footwear in the house. Mm-hmm. Um, even when we have workers or people come, we have booties now. Mm-hmm. We we brought a whole pack, so we give them if they're not used to it. And and when my son was in kindergarten, um, so he my grand my my in laws and my parents kind of were uh, always at home. And uh, he grew up eating with his fingers. So when he mm-hmm. entered pre K, not even kindergarten, he was eating his snacks and his meal with his fingers and somebody a very precocious child called him a savage (laughs) of course i i loved his vocabulary but i was kind of said well he doesn't know your culture your context so what i did is i i called the principal or or the head of the school and i said i'm going to bring snacks and i brought two snacks one was solid and Mm -hmm. one was liquid and and so you couldn't eat like imagine uh, having a like a um you know liquidy like not so liquid but like a soup that's mm-hmm. uh, you couldn't eat with your fingers so i um served both these items on a plate and my son was extremely proficient in eating both without ever like spilling or touching anything and then i kind of walked the entire little little munchkins through the rules of eating. So in in our culture, you don't use your left hand. You always eat with your right hand. You do not let food, you either use these three fingers, you know, your thumb and first two fingers. You do not let any food touch the palm. Now, if you follow these rules, now it becomes an executive process, right? So eating, if you're not used to eating, you're like slobbering. It's like trickling down your elbows. And once I opened these little kids' minds about another way of eating, they never, of course, called him any names. But also he was so proud of himself of being very proficient in his ability to do a particular way that nobody else knew. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I'm just like picturing this like, even in my household and my son, my younger son, he has dysgraphia. Oh. <laughs> I wonder how that, which is, you know, handwriting challenges for those who have heard that term. But yes, it's just, you know, that would be really sloppy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I, I just think that you're, you're right. I think this kind of awareness that some people don't have the context, hence they're under, under functioning is such an important way of developing compassion and patience for it. So tell us a little bit about this idea of, um, a, another little important component that you talk about in your book is that uh, listening skills. Um, what, what, in what ways people lose uh, their audience or do not pay attention? And, and what are some of the strong, powerful, meaningful listening skills that I think have incredible, meaningful application to even adults with or without any challenges and not just kids? Yeah. So this has become... Um you know, huge in our culture of um, in the United States, I think that we're all just overstimulated with technology and media and, you know, we're getting information so fast uh, and it's coming at us from all different directions. And we talk about being mindful, like having everything in your mind just coming fast, 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 fast versus being mindful. Um, and which John Kabat-Zinn talks about mindfulness as paying attention on purpose without judgment. And so, 
that's one of the new additions that I put into the book because I've been trained um, as uh, with mindfulness through uh, Mindful Schools, which is the organization in Oakland, and and it's just changed my life. And it really has um, a lot of benefits for those with executive function challenges and ADHD and just people in general. And so uh, it's something that I practice on a daily basis is just focusing on my breath and getting grounded and having intention and also just noticing when I'm not in a mindful state and when I might be feeling a little worried or anxious or overwhelmed and just working on getting myself grounded again. So these are things that I've taught my boys and what I teach all of my clients as well, including the parents, um, to model this skill and strategy, and then to also teach it to their children. And so this is something I've infused in the book as well. And mindfulness doesn't have to be, um, you know, sitting in silence or a lotus position for 20 minutes. It can be, you know, going for a mindful walk and just focusing on one step uh, at a time and, or listening to music and one sound or, you know, mindful eating. It could be all of that, but it definitely pertains to listening. So this is where we can put our phones down and we can, you know, look people, um, you know, in the face or the eyes, if you're comfortable with that and it's part of your culture. Um, if not, there's other ways to tell people that you are listening and, you know, those who have to move around or whatever it might be, it's some kind of can be helpful for them to listen better when they're moving around. Um, and that's just all self-exploration to know what works best for you. But I, honestly is um, practicing mindfulness can be a really great way to learn how to pause and be in the moment. You know, what I love about your approach and what you're discussing here is that awareness that first you're not doing it. So mm -hmm. somewhere you have to lean into accepting that you are part of this 21st century culture where, where information is coming at us as like a far, fast train. Second is we are hyper exposed to gadgets that bring information unsolicited mm -hmm. information. And third, we are dealing with people who are also exposed to the same information that we are victims of. So we can't really accuse other people of not paying attention. Put your phone down when you have your phone in your hand. Um, and the the I lo love that um, so many of our um, uh, fields are now incorporating mindfulness in, in the works. I think you and I talked about this before. I myself have had a, a practice of 10 to 12 years of mindfulness meditation, uh, but I'm also going through formal training of mindfulness meditation teacher training. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm, I'm doing that so that I can work with a homeless population uh, that oh. I've been teaching for the last two and a half years. Uh, so these practices, um, so that they can have some uh, another tool in their uh, tool belt uh, to for self-empowerment. Tell me... Um, this idea that uh, you also talk about is another huge um, value added uh, through your approach is this navigating transitions. So talk about uh, what do transitions mean to children and in what places and spaces do transitions show up and why transitions are so hard for children as well as adults, but we don't admit it. <laughs> right. Well, it's so there's transitions happening all throughout our day, every day. Um, we think of the big ones as, you know, waking up in the morning and being able to get yourself out of bed and um, 
fed and dressed and, you know, focused on whatever you need to be focused on, which right now is, you know, at my home, it's distance learning. Um, and that in itself is just a dredge. To, it's just huge. Right. Um, and so, and then, you know, from in distance learning, there's, I mean, you think about the minute things about it, like, um, so say you've gotten yourself out of, I mean, just think about all the transitions we have throughout our day. It's really insane. Right. Um, and then in distance learning, you have, you know, working in a larger, um, zoom room to maybe groups to then, you know, some of the kids are working outside of the zoom classes on distance learning. We have synchronous learning. We have asynchronous learning. There's just so much to keep track of. Um, and then, you know, there's transitions from the day to the evening, to homework, to bed, to sports, to friends, to dinner, to, you know, the table. It's just constantly transitioning. And, um, there's so much involved with that, not only with the brain in terms of the cognitive load of, um, you know, being able to have that, you know, this is all executive functioning, right? So it's basically the hindsight, you know, okay, what was that like that working memory? What's in my memory about what do I know I need to do every morning I get up? That's pretty rote now. You don't have to maybe think about it as much, but okay, today is a different, like, in our distance learning, we have the, every two weeks, they change classes and they have two weeks, at a, two classes at a time. So, okay, wh what classes do I have this Monday and, um, or this Tuesday, um, to be getting ready for what books do I need? What materials do I want? That's all the hindsight that you're, you know, retrieving in your working memory to then also forethought to be, you know, showing up with my hair looking decent. And <laughs> this is the teacher who like, you know, wants me to have my, 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 video on and uh, oh this is the class that I have that girl that I have a crush on so I better like you know have that cute shirt on or whatever um, and so that's the forethought of your goals for that the outcome of having a positive experience to be able to figure out what to do right now in the moment so that's the executive function piece in all these transitions which we just think is like come on get out of bed what's the big deal feed yourself and get on zoom come on you know as parents it's just like it seems so easy but there's so much going on um, but then there's also the social regulation, uh, sensory regulation and emotional regulation. So just thinking about, you know, your body as you're from state to state, you know, as especially with my kids' bodies right now with teenagers, um, their hormones are all over the place and, you know, um, their sleep patterns are so different and, um, the regulation piece of it is huge. And then if you have a child that has any kind of sensory overwhelm, um, that's another piece of transitions too, you know, from one situation to another and, you know, the temperature, the noises, the sounds, uh, it's all just huge. And it's just important for us to be aware of your child's own unique profile in uh, where they might thrive and those, these are no big deals and where they might struggle. And these are such, like you said, uh, invisible, nuance-based, lagging skills. So that's why we have to really look at the child as a whole and figure out where they do need support and how we can scaffold and how we can help them with making these routines and activities um, more smooth for them. I really think uh, our listeners are going to be very surprised because I think to people, transition is only task. You mm -hmm. move from a task to another, but you're talking about emotional transition, bodily transitions, and transitions of routine to non-routine and back to uh, a routine task. And 
Um, I can imagine why, you know, in so many ways, this is hard for uh, developing minds, uh, primarily because it requires you to turn something on and Mm -hmm. turn something on. Uh, off. So the yeah. autopilot needs to be turned off. Your intentionality needs to be turned on or your, you know, code switching. So you need to, formality needs to be turned on, informality needs to be turned off. Yep. So, so much responsibility to what filter you're using to look at information. So, uh, uh, so the last part of this discussion, I wanted to kind of uh, talk about your wheelhouse, which is Managing big feelings. So uh, you're big on uh, meltdowns, mood swings, sense of overwhelm, and you have some amazing techniques for that. So talk a little bit about um, what is the makeup of that? What goes into children having these big emotions and how can we channel them? Yeah, so this actually can tie back almost everything that we've talked about today. And this is one of the reasons why I put the, I added the word emotional learning into the book because social emotional learning and as you know, executive functioning are all intertwined. If I could have executive functioning in the title, I would. It just would have been such a mouthful as it is already. Um, And I I actually have two card decks too, one on emotional learning and one on social learning that are um, sort of everyday activities, not so much context-based But so the emotions are a huge piece of it and the self-regulation. As we mentioned before, behavior is communication. And if you're having these challenging behaviors in these situations, um, it's really important for us to look underneath the water line. It's, you know, that how we talk a lot in the field about it being a, um, an iceberg similar, our kids are kind of similar to an iceberg model, um, where you, it's, you see the child, the behaviors at the tip on the tip of the iceberg, which is really only 10% of what's going on. You have to get curious and lean in and, um, lower the water line and go deeper to figure out what they're lagging skills are. And if you have a child that is having meltdowns or overwhelm or anxiety or shutdown, oh, where's my turtle? Um, in our parenting course here, I'll grab them really quickly. Um, you can see this is the turtle that we have um, in our parenting course. And the co-creator of the parenting course, Rebecca, has the porcupine because oftentimes we can retreat into our shell um, and, and when we're overwhelmed, and this is my younger son, my older son is more of the, um, his cohort is the porcupine where you like, you know, your quills come out. Yeah. And then we talk a lot about how the parents are the wise owl anyway. So, um, you know, figuring out what's going on underneath the water line when a child is having those turtling moments or a porcupine, or maybe they're having a combination of both and helping them with what's going on. So we need to determine what those lagging skills are. Are they having trouble communicating with their words or understanding with their language um, processing? Are they having trouble with transitions? Are they having trouble with um, um, task initiation? I want to reiterate what you were saying about task initiation too, because my son, I mean, he, the one with ADHD, um, he struggles so much with non-desired tasks and it looks so, you know, oh, he, he can really focus a lot when he's doing video games. And, but then you ask him to, you know, take out the garbage and you, it's like, he says, it's feeling like, it feels like it's stabbing him, you know, the undesired tasks and stuff. Anyway, so thinking about the emotional regulation is just figuring out um, what are the triggers? Um, what are the lagging skills? You know, some of our 
children really have that sensory overwhelm or underwhelm. Um, they might have trouble with interoception. That's how our, one of the sensory processing um, um, senses is understanding how your body feels and your inner organs are telling your body how it's feeling. It's a domain of an occupational therapist, but I have a lot of clients that struggle with that. And when mm -hmm. you struggle with that, then you can't necessarily um, identify how you're feeling internally and label your feelings and then do, get a tool or figure out what to do with it. So a lot of it is just being aware and um, understanding your own emotions. Um, and then, you know, whether it's mindfulness practice or um, whether you're doing other kinds of curriculum, like, you know, the zones of regulation or emotional ABCs to, to hone in on this more, there's a lot of work that can be done. Um, and then there's also the piece of understanding emotions in others, which is, you know, what we call emotional intelligence and then building emotional literacy. There's so much that could be done here, but it's a huge part of social emotional learning and executive functioning because you have to regulate in order to execute any tasks. Um, I think the 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 big picture with broad strokes we are painting here is I think this internal empowerment that when we talk about executive function and when we talk about self-regulation, we want to discover the power within to know that I can change my ways, I can mm. change my relationship to my world, I can build skills so that I can become in charge of my destiny or mm. destination or both. And, and I think, uh, I really thank you for the work that you are doing, you do, and, and the hope that you bring um, to our clients, their families. And I really hope you come back again because there's so much discussion that we need to have uh, about um, parenting. So I hope you'll consider and come back again. Before I let you go, what are two of your favorite books that you recommend everybody or that have influenced you and have made a big impact on you? That's a hard question, and but a very good one. But I would say, um, you know, I've, I have been extremely influenced by a, a lot of different experts in the field. And so it's really hard to narrow them down. And I actually have so many of them that have contributed to my book. So I will leave those ones aside because you can yeah. go in my book and you can see all the ones that I recommend there. But the one that really has changed a lot, especially with my own child, is um, Ross Green's. Um, I love um, Ross. Yeah, his collaborative and proactive solutions is that's his curriculum, but also um, explosive child and treating the explosive child. But the one that really honed in for me was Lost at School, and I buy it for all of the teachers um, that my son is with every year. So I would say that because it's really it's just a, a game changer in terms of viewing, as we've talked about today, um, the behavior um, on the outside and thinking of kids doing well if they can and really honing in on the lagging skills and where you can provide support. So I would say he's going to be uh, on my podcast in a couple of months. So I will sure be sure to mention that to him. He'll be so thrilled. Oh yeah. No, he knows how much I adore him. He, and I've interviewed him too. He's amazing. So I would say, um, the, um, uh, the, the Ross Green, but I would also, and this is, you know, this is more of a curriculum than a book, but it's really changed my life in so many ways. Um, is the zones of regulation. And I, it's not just because I teach it and I practice it and because I, you know, I train on it and I'm part of the, um, 
the, some of the work that I, Leah Kuypers is doing. But when I first met Leah and when, you know, I wasn't as she did work at my center and we were very close, but I, it really changed the way that I view self-regulation and in my, for my own world and how I was noticing that I was living in what she calls the yellow zone or what we call the yellow zone a lot of my life. And that's when I really got into mindfulness and realizing that I don't want to live in that state, you know, and, and I need to find out what those triggers are and the tools that I can use to get more into a calm state and, um, and live my life in more of a joyous fashion. And so I will say, I will give her kudos for that because, um, it's been an amazing life pivoting, um, experience for me. Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth. You are a darling, you're a doll. Thank you for your brilliant insights and, and your time. Uh, that's all the time we have. It's been a great pleasure to have these conversations. Uh, thank you for tuning in to this amazing discussion. Uh, keep coming back. If you love what you're hearing, recommend this podcast to your friends, colleagues, your peers. Um, and yes, please continue your journey into self-discovery. There's only one path to b- uh, betterment, which is self-awareness and uh, strategic thinking. So I thank you all for being here. And that's all the time we have today. So have a great day. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. I'm honored. Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive function. To contact your host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive function, visit her website at exqinfinitenowhow.com. That's www.exqinfinitenowhow.com. Tune in next week for another informative episode of Full Prefrontal, hosted by the founder of EXQ, Sucheta Kamath.